Welcome to the Occult London podcast. This is a new podcast dedicated to exploring magic, mysticism, the Kabbalah, as well as other topics. If you like the podcast, please write a review and rate us on iTunes, as it will really help us to get this message out there. Also, be sure to visit our website at www.occultlondon.co.uk, where you can subscribe to the show. If anyone has any questions for me, then I'd love to hear from them, so please reach out via Facebook or on email, as I'd love to answer your questions. You can also find my Facebook on the show notes, or alternatively email at occultlondonpodcast at gmail.com. Hope you enjoy it. In today's episode, we are going to be carrying on with our discussion around sacred places and temples, and Today, I wanted to just quickly go through a kind of potted history of some of the different aspects of temples around the world in relation to sacred spaces and and also how they play a part in creating that sacred space. So to start with, the, the word temple um, actually comes from the Latin word templum and is generally considered to mean a it's a structure usually built for the purpose of religious or spiritual activities, including prayer, meditation, worship, and occasionally sacrifice. The word was primarily used to describe pre-Christian places of worship. So that's the kind of main focus in this episode. Um, we won't be going into kind of Christian cathedrals and churches from that perspective, although that is very interesting as well. Um, Traditionally, in ancient cultures, temples were a sacred precinct defined by a priest or sometimes an auger as well, um, which is a Roman priest. And they were seen really as the sort of dwelling place or house of a god or gods. And the structure built was thereby created um, as a house to to house the spirits of of the land or the god or the goddess so it's really kind of like this uh, localization of this um, spiritual energy that's drawing the the god or the goddess into it essentially and then it inhabits it um, early temples were often constructed in places that had a numinous quality to them. So, you know, indicating kind of a sacred presence. So, for example, if, you, if you're if you based in the UK, there is a place up in Orkney called Ness of Brodga. Um, you also get stone circles, etc., such as Stonehenge and other places. And as you can see with most, the majority of these, you know, they're outside. They're in very kind of... Um, often desolate or isolated locations where you really get this feeling of meeting with the elements and the elementals and it really starts to bring you into a kind of altered state of consciousness being in that particular place. One of the earliest temples that um, has been found and there may be others obviously as well is Gebekli Tepe in southern Turkey This is one of the oldest known Neolithic temples and predates the Egyptian pyramids by around 8,000 years, they believe, um, and Stonehenge by six millennia. So 
it's got incredible reliefs and pictograms and plants and animals and there's a really kind of strong animistic um, feeling to to the carvings this temple has t-shaped pillars and a large room at the front which was probably used for ceremonial purposes but it's also very likely it was used for an, as an initiation center so a place for religious festivities and also a place where kind of local communities would have got together as we said in our previous episode often temples would incorporate two different aspects so there would be a kind of an inner temple which would be more kind of your initiates that were training in the mysteries and then often there would be connected to that an outer outer temple which would be more connected with an actual more kind of um, mainstream religion from that point of view so you know getting involved with different cultural events festivals seasonal events etc um, certainly in ancient cultures a lot of different um, societies would not have had such a big distinction between the secular government and the sacred so they'd often have, have would have been quite combined from that point of view so obviously the temples would have had the same connection there um, moving on to Egypt there's obviously hundreds of temples in Egypt all the way down the Nile and really in that place the temple is considered to be a sort of horizon of a divine being so the place where the god came into existence and a link to the very sort of distant past the temples of Egypt are also considered to be a mirror of the universe and representation of the Benben which was a sacred mound which rose out of the chaos by the will of Amon at the beginning of time similar to Mesopotamia um temples in Egypt were generally considered to be the home for the gods so for instance the temple of Hathor at Dendea uh, would have been considered to be her actual home and where she's actually based so obviously the priests that would have been based in that temple would have been honoring to Hathor uh, majority of the temples in Egypt tended to follow the same sort of pattern so you've got this kind of forecourt with a reception area with colonnades and inclines rising higher and higher to smaller and smaller rooms until you eventually reach the holy of holies where the the god was meant to reside only the most important and powerful priests so the people that had been in the mysteries for you know their entire lives were were really allowed to enter that holy of holies um as I said before, there was usually these this kind of two parts to the temple here in Egypt as well. So you'd have this outer temple where the, you know, the beginning initiates were allowed to come, and possibly some members of the the general public. And then you've got the inner temple, which where you could only enter if you were really sort of proven worthy and had trained in that mystery tradition and kind of acquired those higher knowledges and insights. Um, one of the concepts the Egyptians held was that the man is was a microcosm of the universe which was the macrocosm and this is probably where we get the saying know thyself coming from or nothi suton so the spiritual aspect of the concept you know is very much around um the man is like a symbol of the universe which they symbolize as a five-pointed star so it was like a divine essence of the creator and the heavens um alan richardson actually wrote a really nice quote which i wanted to quote in this bit about egypt when he said the following there is a belief in magic all systems of magic since time began that physical substances can be imbued with a certain vitality 
and that they can hold this vitality like a battery holds its electricity. Thus, the items and decorations in an Egyptian temple were more than just that. They were imbued with powers. To the inner eye of the sensitive, they would sparkle. The temple itself was always, always an architectural expression of the universe, or if not the universe as a whole, then those portions and aspects of which which most concerned its particular priests and priestesses. So here we get this concept of um, the one and the many um, from, from that point of view. So obviously, you know, Egyptian had the, this kind of pantheon of gods and different temples would represent different gods and different powers, etc. Um, but he's saying, you know, potentially behind this, there would have been this overriding kind of... Um, force that united them all so although they're all represented as different pieces they are all part of the one so un of understanding the little pieces we begin to understand that one great truth moving on to mesopotamia so um mesopotamia you know the temples were generally multifunctional you know they filled religious as well as administrative purposes the city of eridu was thought to be the original city in the world created by the gods after their defeat of the forces of chaos and the origin of the decrees or words of creation which were known as the sacred meh were meant to have come from the temple where the god of wisdom lived which was Enki and this is a quote from that particular text which is Enki in the world order poem grandiloquent Lord of heaven and earth, self-reliant Father Enki, engendered by a bull, begotten by a wild bull, cherished by Enlil, the great mountain, beloved by holy An, king, mess tree planted in the Abzu, rising over all lands, great dragon who stands in the Eridua, whose shadow covers heaven and earth, a grove of vines extending over the land, Enki, Lord of Plenty of the Anuna gods, Nudimud, Mighty One of the Ekur, Strong One of Heaven and Earth, Your great house is founded in the Abzu, The great mooring post of Heaven and Earth, Enki, from whom a single glance is enough to unsettle the heart of the mountains. Wherever bison are born, where stags are born, where ibex are born, where wild goats are born, in meadows, in hollows, in the heart of the hills, in green, unvisited by man, you have fixed your gaze on the heart of the land, like a halal reed. And that's a beautiful bit of poetry, which is from that, that Mesopotamian tradition. Um, the goddess Inanna, who is also part of the Mesopotamian tradition and is famous from the descent of Inanna, is meant to have stolen the meh which is the rules for civilization from Enki, her father, during a um, really heavy drinking competition. And she was meant to have brought them to Uruk. And this was really kind of meant to represent this transfer of power from, you know, one city to another and also one temple to another. So Uruk would have ruled, it would have been ruled by a priest king. So the temple would have really kind of acted as this kind of seat of his religious and secular power so again here we get this concept of the blending of the sacred and the 
secular from that point of view and the priest king uh, being very much kind of key part of that as well um moving more towards the judaism tradition as well um in judaism temples were originally known as sanctuaries places or halls but they've also been known as the house of yahweh um Beit elohim house of god and also belti which is my house um, there were meant to have been two ancient temples in Jerusalem, which were called Beit and Hamikdash, which translated as holy houses. And they were similar to the Egyptians in that their temples were meant to house actual God. So the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, which is the current site of the Dome of the Rock and the Al-Aqsa Mosque, was really where this, the, where God was was meant to have been based. This is the site where the first Temple of Solomon is meant to have been built and at its centre was the Holy of Holies where only the priest, high priest could enter. This is where God was meant to have um, concentrated invisibly really and kind of gathered around the Ark of the Covenant and later on this was kind of reduced into a, a kind of smaller area in which was kept the sort of scrolls of the law and, and that law is obviously God himself. This concept of having a kind of holy of holies is also quite similar to the Christian church using like the tabernacle or, or a small safe in which like the sacred vessels and the sacrament and the holy cloths and the you know the chalice etc uh, are kept and that's you know where the the body of Christ and is meant to be kept as well. Um, that didn't really translate over into the protestant tradition however um so you come to see you know in, in protestant churches they tend to get rid of a lot of this kind of gold and uh ritual that you do you see more in the catholic church and it, um, the churches tend to be a lot plainer and you'll see um you know they, they began to see god as being more this sort of in, invisible presence that kind of shows itself through the teaching and the preachings of the word from the scriptures rather than being actually existing in a specific object or locality. Um, the Bible has some interesting descriptions of Solomon's temple, which is also called the first temple, and it was suggested that the inside ceiling was 180 feet long, uh, 90 feet wide and 50 feet high, and the highest point on the temple that King Solomon built was actually 120 cubits tall, which in today's language would be about 20 stories or about 207 feet high. So really, you know, it must have been absolutely massive um, if he were walking past the temple in those days. And according to the Tanakh, um, the Second Chronicles, it said the following, the length by cubits after the ancient measure was three score cubits and the breadth 20 cubits. And the porch that was before the house, the length of it, according to the breadth of the house, was 20 cubits and the height 120. And he overlaid it within with pure gold. Solomon's not meant to have been particularly um, big on budgets with regards to building this temple so he orders vast quantities of sil of cedar wood from king hiram of tyre um, he has huge blocks of stone quarried which are kind of out of the base of jerusalem 
and he also commands that the building's foundation is laid with hewn stone. Um, it's meant to have, you know, have lots of different workers working on it and drafting them into shifts as well, sometimes for, you know, an awfully long time. And there was apparently 3,300 officials overseeing the, the temple building. When the temple was completed, he is meant Solomon is meant to have inaugurated it with prayer and sacrificed and even invited um you know the non Jewish people to, to come and pray there and he's meant to have also said to God Thus all the peoples of the earth will know your name and revere you, as does your people Israel, and they will recognise that your name is attached to this house that I have built. Um, yeah, so that's kind of going through the the, the more Hebraic stuff. Um, we'll be talking about King Solomon in a, in a later episode as well. Moving on to ancient Greece. So um, in ancient Greece, obviously, there's an awful lot of temples scattered all around in lots of different locations. It's definitely worth checking it out if you get the chance to visit when this um, awful lockdown thing ends. The Greeks called their temples Temenos, or a sacred precinct, and Temenos was really a, a word to describe a, a sacred space called Hieron. So all things inside this area belonged to the gods, and also there was the um, mythology that Greeks could find asylum within the sanctuary and be under the protection of the deity and could be not moved against their will. The sacredness of the temple was connected with the actual place itself and the gods that live there rather than the actual building. So often you'll find that it would be connected to a particular mythological story uh, relating to the gods. So it could be a particular river where something happened or, you know, for instance, Mount Olympus, where the gods were meant to have um, lived. Or you get the Oracle at Delphi. So, you know, you've got these caves going down. There's all this kind of volcanic smoke, etc. Um, so the place is much more um, connected than the actual kind of physical building that was that was made. Um, for instance, you've got the Temple of Demeter at Alasis, you've got the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, which are worth visiting, which is apparently where, according to Pausanias, uh, the ancient aphorism Nothi Suton, or Know Thyself, was apparently carved in the Proneus of the temple. There's also the Temple of Artemis at Ephesus, um, and obviously most famous of all, the Parthenon, which housed the statue of um, Athena Parthethos, who was the patron goddess of the city. Um, see, um, Carl Jung actually talks about the concept of the temenos, so this kind of um, enclosing of the sacred power, and in particular in relation to kind of a magic circle. And he mentions as it being almost like a square space or a safe spot where mental work can take place. And he also talks about how the Temenos um, is similar to the kind of symmetrical rose garden with a fountain in the middle, um, the squared circle in which you get this concept of encounters with the unconscious and it can be brought into the light. So often in the Western mystery tradition, you'll find there'll be various techniques where you'll be going into something, could be using a path working uh, to go to a specific place, um, such as a castle or a, you know, a garden or, you know, a cave. And in that sacred space that you've built with the building blocks of the imagination, using the magical imagination, 
um, that is the place where then you can interact with these more um, with really with these archetypal figures that that kind of live within that world and it can also bring up um you know various different things about yourself so it's a way of kind of meeting these inner guides and understanding more about yourself as well moving on to temples in india and china um and i don't know a lot about this stuff but um i thought i'd cover it quickly so the earliest temples are meant to have been honored in zion which was heaven and represented creation and divine order. See, uh, Zion was a was a deity, but also heaven and the home of the ancestral spirits. And so, a lot of temples honoured that. There was also other temples that honoured people as well. So, for instance, there's a temple in Khufu, and apologies if I'm not pronouncing these names right, that honours the philosopher Confucius that was built in 487 BCE. And that was one of the largest in China that covered an area of 16,000 square metres and a total of 460 rooms. So pretty massive. Um, other thing I wanted to mention in you know Asia particularly is uh, Shinto temples in Japan. Um, you know, they often worship nature spirits and were also meant to have been this dwelling of the of the kami or the Shinto gods. And you also had things like sacred objects of worship that represent the kami were stored in the innermost chamber of the shrine where they could be seen by anybody. And people would visit shrines in order to pay respect to the kami or pray for good fortune. And this is a tradition that still goes on um, to this day, I'm, I'm informed. Um, and also, you know, particularly on sort of holidays, such as New Year and, and other festivals, as well as um, they often bring newborn babies to these places as well. Um, Hanya Yanigirahara um, said the following about Shinto temples. Go to any Shinto temple in Japan and you'll see it. A simple stand from which hang hundreds of wooden postcard-sized plaques with a colourful image on one side and on the other densely scribbled Japanese characters in black felt-tipped tim pen. Please to the god for help or succour. So this here we see this, this concept, um, you know, very much still existing actually. So people are going to the temple... Um, to to really kind of ask for ask for the spirits to help them and act as an intermediary um, with whatever problem they're having in their lives. So we honour the, the spirits and then they they provide help. And to a certain extent, that's been carried over quite heavily into the Catholic faith as well. So obviously, you get the tradition of the you know the saints. So you can pray to a specific saint, or you can light a candle by a specific shrine. Um, and say a prayer and you know it's meant to kind of provide a be an intermediary uh, between that so like we discussed with Egypt where we have the pantheon of gods and the one god uh, you could argue in the catholic church particularly you would have a you know the one god and then also a variety of different saints who as a human we can probably relate to a bit more than say a really kind of abstract principle and obviously ask for that intermediary and then obviously with you know the Christ as well that is also this intermediary figure that enables us to understand um, something that is completely un-understandable un and kind of beyond words. Um, and you also see that in Hindu temples as well in India. I'm not going to go into that because, you know, that's a huge amount of um, a huge topic to discuss. 
but um, again you see this concept of, of different gods helping the community etc in ancient rome as well um, obviously temples were very important and that was where the rituals were were performed and also where these priests who performed the algas um, would have been based as well an alga was a priest who essentially would look at different signs or portents such as the flight of birds to understand the location of the deity but also you know whether you are um you know in the right whether you're in the good books of the god or the spirit as well and they would essentially study the inter and interpret the, the will of the gods by studying the flight or behavior of birds so whether they're in a, in a group or whether they're flying alone what noises they made what direction they were going in whether it's east south north or west um whether they were eating whether they weren't eating and it was known as taking auspices one of the most famous auspices is one which is connected with the founding of rome um, so I'm sure everyone knows the founders of Rome were meant to have been Romulus and Remus, who arrived at Palatine Hill. The two are meant to have argued over where the exact position of the city should be. Um, one of the brothers was meant was set on building the city actually on the hill itself, on the Palatine. But um, Remus wanted to build the city on another hill, which was known as Aventine Hill, and they basically sat down and discussed this and then they agreed to settle their argument by testing their abilities as augurs and by the will of the gods. And so they each took a seat on the ground apart from each other and then according to Plutarch, Remus is meant to have seen six vultures and Romulus saw twelve. Um, so that's one example. There's another example of using this this olgas as a way of um you know fortune telling essentially or divination where you could look at the feeding habits of chickens um and this was called tripudium and this was especially employed during military expeditions as well so i know it sounds quite mad um the idea of an army having a whole load of chickens that they they use to divine how they should how they should go into battle um, the chickens puli were kept in a cage under care of a person called the pularius and when the auspices were meant to be taken out so the pularius would open the cage throw the chickens the food and if they refused to come out refused to eat um, or made lots of noise and tried to fly away then the signs were considered unfavorable however if they ate greedily and if some if food actually fell out of their beaks as well, then that was meant to have been very favourable, and it was known as Tripudium Solistimum, and it was a favourable sign. And I just wanted to quote from Titus Livius in his History of Rome on this subject, because it's quite an interesting subject. There was not a man, whatever his rank or condition, in the camp who was not seized by the passion for battle, the highest and lowest alike, were eagerly looking forward to it. The general was watching the excited looks of the men. The men were looking at their general. The universal excitement extended even to those who were engaged in observing the sacred birds. The chickens refused to eat, but the Polarius ventured to misrepresent matters and reported to the council that they had eaten so greedily that the corn dropped from their mouths onto the ground. The consul, delighted at the news, 
gave out that the omens could not have been more favourable. They were going to engage the enemy under the guidance and blessing of heaven. He then gave the signal for battle. So the chickens um, had a really big part to play in the general's decision there. So um, I wouldn't recommend trying that um, if you are going into battle, but... um, you know, maybe it, maybe it, maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Who knows? <laughs> um, so moving on to yeah, I mean, t- just the kind of layout of Roman temples. So they usually faced east or towards the rising sun. Uh, the pantheon was slightly different um, as it faces north, um, and it's still there actually. So it's converted into a church. Um, in ancient Rome, the deities of the Roman pantheon had a, a temple, whereas foreign deities or you know there's obviously a huge empire the roman empire so they were bringing in lots of different influences from all over the world and they would have different temples which were known as farnum if you were a tourist you would be expected to honor the local gods um before you honored yours so it's kind of like paying homage which is a really nice thing to do so if you ever travel anywhere and you you know to a new country or a new place or you just moved to a new place for instance moved house that's a really good practice to do is to actually you know do something to honor the local land local spirits etc um, because that's really important that you, you kind of do that they, they were there before you um and yeah and obviously after that you know you get the rise of christianity that you know the term temple is is kind of gotten rid of in favour of church or cathedral, um, however it is still used in the, the Russian Orthodox Church. So that's all we've got time for this week. Um, I hope you found this episode interesting. Um, I will be doing a few more episodes over the next couple of days on more aspects about how how the layout of the temple is, um, some of the key elements you'd get in a, in a Western mystery tradition temple as well. And then we'll also be talking about, you know, different tools that are used by magicians as well in terms of that temple piece. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Thanks very much for joining us this week on the Occult London podcast. If anyone has any questions for me, then please reach out via Facebook or an email as I'd love to answer them. My email is occultlondonpodcast at gmail.com. Also, we really want to develop this further, so we'd appreciate if you can rate the show or leave a review on iTunes. This will mean more people can see it and hopefully get some value. And please make sure to visit our website at occultlondon.co.uk. Catch you all soon. Thanks. Bye-bye. Moon